You can open your Bibles with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, we're beginning a new chapter in the Gospel of John here this week. Lord willing, we will cover verses 1 through 10 of John chapter 20. And so if you're able, I'd ask you at this time to stand with me. And we'll read John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Beginning now in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. As For as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Thank you. You may be seated. While you're being seated, I'll ask you to bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, oh God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the testimony of Scripture, which you, by your Holy Spirit, have written, authored, and preserved for us. Oh God, I pray that you would help us now to enter fully into it. Oh Lord, we are but men and women and children, and we are mortal and finite. We are weak. I am weak, we are unable, O God, to understand things rightly without You. Apart from You, we can do nothing. We can know nothing. Lord, I ask that You would put a door over my mouth and guard me from error. And yet, O Father, that You would grant a boldness and an authority to speak with conviction, to speak with certainty about those things which are certain. Lord, help us to rejoice and praise your dear son in light of these things set before us now. Father, I pray that you would do a mighty work, Lord, that there would be salvation visit this place for one who is lost. Lord, that we might all grow in our appreciation for your grace. Lord, I ask these things in Jesus name. Amen. The title of this message is a quotation straight out of the text from verse 9. He must rise from the dead. The necessity of the resurrection according to John's account here. There are several different components we're going to consider, but without question, the most significant thing here is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You remember last week we were looking at the certainty of His death. And this week, we come to look at the certainty of His resurrection. Last week, we were looking at Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea and their interaction and the growth and development that they had as believers. 
that the more that they came to understand by the Holy Spirit, the more willing they were to publicly and boldly stand up and interact with those who were in authority as followers of Jesus. And so we begin here in verse 1 of chapter 20 as we consider Jesus' resurrection. And we find, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. First thing I want to point out in this verse is that all that we're looking at here today is taking place on the first day of the week. Here we have a pattern which is established here and it's continued to impact the church throughout the ages until today. You remember in a previous message recently, we were considering what is the Sabbath? What is the fourth commandment and how does that impact us today? Some people may be inclined to think that the way that we merit righteousness is by going to church on Sunday. Well, that's not at all what the scripture tells us about the Sabbath. We considered before that in the old covenant, the Jews, they observed their religious rest on the seventh day, the Sabbath day, as God had commanded them. But Christ himself in the new covenant is the one we are resting in. We've been delivered from our slavery to dead works and we no longer observe these outward works in order to try to make ourselves righteous. We've stopped our working to try to be righteous and we're resting in his finished work. Jesus Christ is our Sabbath. And yet it does remain for us to observe a day of worship and celebration. It is not a direct parallel with the Old Testament Sabbath. And yet there is a one day in seven pattern where we do come together to celebrate, to commemorate, to remember Jesus Christ. And it's not just by happenstance that we do that on Sunday. We see in the book of Acts, as well as the epistles and the majority of church history, that Christians have continued this pattern of corporate worship on the first day of the week, Sunday. Now us, unlike many of the Jews, are not attempting to merit our own righteousness by checking a religious box and being here today. If you're gathered with us today, I praise God that you're here. There's zero righteousness for you as it pertains to salvation and being here. But nonetheless, I'm glad you're here. We are celebrating and commemorating the resurrection of Christ, who did in fact rise the first day of the week. And we are here together seeking to enjoy the rest that we found in Him. It was the first day of the week and Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. The next thing we consider together is the urgency of Mary Magdalene. This is an odd thing. Here she has risen early in the morning. The sun's not even up yet. And she's rushing, making her way to the tomb early. We see Mary's affection. We see her sorrow and her longing for the Lord even after his death. Now, what do these things indicate to us? Well, they tell us something of Mary's understanding of the Lord's grace upon her. She comes early, she comes in the dark, and she comes to the place that he was laid. And here's my question, and we immediately begin getting confronted by some things ourselves. What was the source of Mary's urgency and her affection? What did she possibly hope to find in the way of comfort or solace standing outside of a dead man's tomb? Well, for that, let me remind you of what's true of Mary from Luke chapter 8 and verse 2. We find it says in some also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out. 
So what we're reminded of, here's Mary early in the morning while it's still dark, going to the tomb of Jesus. What's she so urgent to get there about? Well, Mary had been delivered supernaturally, gloriously from seven demons. I don't know what you think, but if I had one demon possessing me and I was delivered from it, that would be pretty remarkable, pretty incredible. In my life as a Christian, I may have seen, if I counted on one hand, maybe two or three different individuals that I believe were genuinely possessed by a demon. And I won't go into the details of those things, but it is a fearful and terrifying thing and probably more common in the world than we even realize. There are probably many people today that are diagnosed with mental disease that are in fact possessed by an evil spirit. And we assume that that's not true because the medical sciences tell us, no, this is something else, a hormone imbalance or something. Well, there's nothing in the scriptures that tells me that demonic possession has ceased to take place or happen. But here's my point. Mary had been possessed, controlled by seven evil spirits. And then furthermore, Mary had witnessed the supernatural power of Christ to heal her of these evil spirits. And some might suggest to us here why Mary's here early is because she was hoping beyond hope that the power of Christ might be able to overturn his death. But I'm going to suggest to you that is highly unlikely. In light of the fact that our verses today are going on to tell us that the disciples had yet before this point, they've yet to understand that Jesus must rise from the dead. So I ask again, what is the likely explanation for why Mary's here? It's much more likely that Mary Magdalene's heart was so bound to Christ that she yearned to be as near to him as she could be, even if it was only in order to mourn outside of his tomb. And so I'm struck by this thought. Are you and I, are we those who realize the horrors from which we ourselves have been delivered? You may not have ever been possessed by a devil. Probably none of us in this room. Maybe some of you have been knowingly or unknowingly. But just because you haven't been possessed or controlled by a demonic spirit does not mean that you have not been delivered from real horror, real difficulty, real impossibility. My question is, are we like Mary compelled even beyond reason and logic? It makes no reasonable sense, no logical sense. If she doesn't understand the scriptures that teach us Christ must rise from the dead. If she doesn't understand that yet, there's no logical reason for her to be there in the dark before the sun comes up early at the tomb outside Jesus. Great. It doesn't make any sense. But are we like her ever compelled to pursue him who we are unable to see in light of the deliverance he has bestowed on us. I want to read a section for you. You ought to be familiar with this, but I want to read it nonetheless from Luke chapter seven. This is what I believe is underneath Mary's urgency and her insistence on being here at this early time. Luke chapter seven, begin reading with me in verse thirty six. One of the Pharisees asked him, being Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, 
If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had, who had uh, two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. One of these days, perhaps, Lord willing, I will preach through the Gospel of Luke and deal with that section in its fullness. But for our purposes now, do you see the point that's being illustrated in this? Mary Magdalene understood the greatness of what Jesus Christ had done for her and it controlled her every thought. It controlled her heart. She's there before the cross while He's dying. Here she is in the dark shortly after, a couple of days later. There, even though He's in the tomb. And just like this woman... Consider the insanity of a harlot woman going without being invited into a Pharisee's house. It's not logical. It doesn't make sense. There's no reason to it. But she was there. She heard Jesus was there. So she was going there. In a like way, it may not sound reasonable that Mary's out. Dangerous. It's dark. There could be robbers on the way. She seems to be by herself, but she's there looking for Jesus. The point is, if you see your own sins as small or insignificant, You're very likely going to have little love or appreciation for Jesus Christ if you even love Him at all. But if you begin to see your own sin as horrific in the sight of God, as worthy of judgment and hell, and as impossible to overcome, even as impossible as casting out not one, but seven evil spirits, then you too perhaps will be moved into this kind of a desperate urgency to be near to the One who has saved you. So she's there early. The next thing we find in verse 2. After she realizes the tomb is open, the stone's been rolled away, that he's not there immediately, we see this. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Now this is talking about Peter, Simon Peter, Cephas, and John. This is John's... Known thing, the one whom the Lord loved, the one whom Jesus loved. That's how John describes himself. So here Mary Magdalene's gone to Peter and gone to John. These are two of the three that were in Jesus' inner circle. You have James, Peter, and John. Here's Peter and John. She comes to them concerned and she says, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid Him. Immediately, and this is a primary thought that I hope you get today in these Scriptures, is this. That poor understanding of theology is guaranteed to lead you to stress, anxiety, and sorrow in your soul. 
The less of God's word that you know and understand, the less of God himself you know and understand, the more anxious and desperate you're going to be, the more difficulties you're going to feel in your own heart. Consider this. Can you imagine the heartache, the disappointment that these disciples must have been feeling? I mean, not only has the one that they see, they believe it had been he who would redeem Israel, not only him, Has he died and been killed and humiliated as a criminal? But now, at least to Mary Magdalene, it appears that his body has been stolen. Either to be hidden away from them where they could not get near or even further disrespected. Perhaps she fears that they've taken Jesus' body like William Wallace and they're going to chop it into pieces and spread it over the countryside. She doesn't know what they're doing. She's just concerned. And all of this fear, all of this anxiety, depression... Everything that happens is a result of her lack of understanding of God's word and of God himself. You see, this empty tomb should have been a cause of rejoicing and celebration. These disciples ought to have immediately broken out into songs of praise and adoration. Yes, he is risen. And we know that this side of things. But in the moment, they could have known if they understood and knew the scriptures, it could have saved them a great deal of anxiety and depression. And it could have prevented her from stirring up this flurry of confusion. So, my question is, in an application, what is our response to circumstances in life that do not align with our expectations? Do not align with what we think the best thing or even the thing we're expecting God to do, even if we're misunderstanding His Word. How is it? That we're going to respond to those things. When things take a turn for the worse. Are you cast into worry and despair and heartache and misery? And you immediately do what she tries to do. And what John and Peter try to do. Try to solve it yourself. Tragedies struck. And all of a sudden how do I reckon, How do I redeem the thing? How do I fix it? Well, often our minds, our hearts are consumed by this kind of worry rather than God's word and his promises. Now, I'm going to present to you at this time two scriptures. And if you carry these scriptures out logically, I don't believe there's a single thing you could ever face in this world that these two things will not be a sweet ointment to your soul in the light of. And this I speak personally, these two things, anytime it, whether great or small, there's a circumstance that I'm not pleased with. If my mind would but go back to these two scriptures, these two foundational truths of the Bible, then it should deal with and deliver me from my own worry. The first is this. Psalm 115 and verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. In other words, if it's happening, it's according to what our God in the heavens is pleased to have happen. There's nothing outside of that. God is absolutely sovereign. And nothing takes place outside of His good purpose. And the second one is Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Now you combine these two things and this is the end, the conclusion you must come to. God is absolutely sovereign over everything that ever happens and He's got a good purpose in everything that happens. And if both of those things are true, there's only one question for me left to ask. 
Am I going to submit to his purpose for good or am I going to demand that I get to be God? Because if it's happening, God has willed it. It's according to his good purpose and he has a good purpose. Am I okay with saying I am not on the throne? This may not be how I would do it. And yet God is sovereign. And this, the more of the scriptures that you're consumed by in your heart, the more you're going to be able to endure such tragedies and difficulties that throw you off of balance. If you're submitted to these things. To take three and four verses three and four of John 20 together. So she's come and she's told Peter and John. And then we find in verses three and four. So Peter went out with the other disciple with John and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So here we're seeing what Peter and John's reaction is to Mary's news. They quickly go to investigate the tomb for themselves. Now, one thing that we're shown in these two verses together here, I've got to admit, is somewhat comical. I've said before that I, I never try to plan anything funny in a sermon. Well, this is an exception. So be free, feel free to laugh. I, I, I feel free to laugh at this myself. But here's what we see is that the scriptures are both God breathed and yet written by real men with real personalities. Now, here's the funny part. You can almost imagine John smiling as he describes these events. Here he is as an eyewitness. He's led by the Holy Spirit and he's permanently <coughs> recording himself as the winner of this foot race. Now, I've heard it suggested this is not original to me, but it's good nonetheless that you can imagine John gets there first and him and Peter talking later and John's just carrying on about how he beat him there. And Peter says, I don't know what you're on about, John. It's not like anybody's ever going to know. And John looks at him and says, everyone will know. And, but the reality is, here's a personality. We know that Peter and John, they had a very close relationship. We remember that back even when Jesus was on trial, that there was John inside the court. Peter's on the outside. John sends the girl to go let him in. They were up on the Mount of Transfiguration together. We know that they were in the Garden of Gethsemane together. These men are together after the resurrection. They're there at the synagogue, at the temple together. These men had a close relationship and you see their personalities and they're going to be unfolded even yet more in our text today. But what we find is that God, what we have in the scriptures, it is authored by God, the spirit through men. And you can see the distinctions in the men that God uses. And in here you have perhaps a very intentionally funny remark from John. Second Peter 1.21 says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So God spoke through men. That's why you'll have differences in writing styles between Peter or Paul or John or others who wrote Scripture. You have differences in personality, differences in writing style, and yet God is inspiring every word that is written of the Scriptures. They sought to remind us, even these two verses here, this description of their going, it reminds us that the things we're looking at, they're not fairy tales. As a matter of fact, Peter talks about that very thing in 2 Peter 1. These aren't myths. These aren't things that we're making up. This is truth from God. And we're reminded in the personality distinction that these are real people in literal history. These are things taking place in people's actual lives. We get to verse 5 and we find this. So John got there first. 
And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. John in verse 5 appears to us to be somewhat frozen in place. He arrived first, and yet he seems so perplexed, so amazed, that he can't even bring himself to enter in. And I just am struck immediately by this. Have you ever been confronted by the truth in God's Word which stretches your understanding and even challenges your expectations to the point where you're just forced to stand still before God. Do you know what it's like? I mean, John gets there, the tomb's open. He's looking there from the outside and he can't even bring himself to go in. He's frozen in time. Have you ever been so awe-stricken by God that your legs and your mouth stop and all you can do is be still? Be still before Him. You know, in the Psalms, Whenever there's a deep and significant line delivered, often it's followed by a selah. A selah. You ever wonder what that is in the Scriptures? It would have been like a a musical note that called, called for a pause. In other words, stop and think about what you just sang. Stop and think about the depth of significance and reflect on and meditate upon the truth coming out of your mouth. You see, the end of our text today is going to tell us that John believed. John says that whenever he went inside, eventually he looked, he beheld the cloth, he believed. Could it be that John stopping short and looking from the outside, taking a moment to pause and consider what's going on? Could it be that that was a means of God and enlightening John's mind to the truth? Very much of the time, you and I are like Peter. As soon as we get there, we're rushing in. We're not waiting. We're going in to figure things out. And there's not a pausing. We are those who will go from one bit of understanding to the next without stopping to meditate on the simple and yet deep things of God. We find of John, he did not go in. Verse 6 tells us, Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there. Now, typical Peter for us, as we might expect, Peter reaches the tomb and he doesn't waste any time and rushes right in. And upon arriving, he finds these linen cloths, which were before, thanks to Nicodemus, wrapped around the dead body of Jesus. And these cloths are now lying on the ground and Jesus' body is missing. Now, this detail might at first seem to us as somewhat insignificant. If robbers had indeed, and this is what Mary Magdalene thought, they've taken away his body. If it had just been robbers or the Jews or even the Romans who'd stolen away Jesus' body. Perfectly possible that as they're taking his body out, that these claws fell off him onto the ground into a pile. But the next detail that's given is remarkable. Simon Peter came in following him and went into the tomb and he saw the linen claws lying there. Then verse 7, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen claws, but folded up in a place by itself. My conclusion is this, not to the sermon, to this point. The Holy Spirit inspired John to include both of these details so that we would know that they're not insignificant. And it would seem to me that the primary point in referencing the linen cloths lying on the ground in verse 6 was in order to contrast them with the face cloth which was folded up by itself. That we would see there's a distinction, a difference between the two. That the face cloth had been folded up. Now, that would have been a highly unusual discovery. 
if the body had been stolen away. What sort of a thief who's already risking a great deal to go and take a body away is going to stop and fold up one of the cloths? And yet it is. This is a clear indication that whoever, with a capital W, removed this face cloth very intentionally and folded it up and laid it down separately from the other cloths. Now, I might be about to burst somebody's bubble, and I forgive me for doing so, because it really preaches well, but I want to bring some clarification. Have you ever heard it speculated that this folded cloth was kind of like a folded napkin indicating that Jesus was returning? It sounds pretty good, and if you haven't heard that, you can go and research this for yourself. But some preachers have speculated that exact thing. Now, as far as I can tell, there is a European custom that if people are reclining at a meal and someone gets up, but they're coming back to finish eating, then they'll leave their napkin folded and not undone. And it's an indication that they're coming back. And there have been some sermons preached where people have suggested that this folded cloth is foreshadowing Christ's return. And yet, I would suggest to you in light of all that I've been able to study that that is not an intended thing that we are to see in this text. Though there is this European custom, I find no evidence that the Jews had any such custom. And in light of that, there's even something further I would say. It really wouldn't make any sense if that were the case. If the custom is a folded napkin means you're coming back to finish the meal, in the context of the grave, here's my point to you. Jesus died, He got up from that grave, and He's never going back to that grave. The work He was doing in that grave is indeed finished. The grave work's done. He's not returning there. Jesus is returning in order to judge the world and call His own to Himself, but He's not returning to that grave. And so let me suggest the most important thing for us to get out of these folded claws is that Jesus Christ, His body was not stolen or taken away. He got up in that grave and folded that face cloth and set it down. That's the point. No one stole His body. Verse 8, we press along and we find this. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. Now I mentioned that John, I really made a big deal. Didn't I be still and know that I am God? Look at John there meditating. Selah, pondering, looking at the empty tomb, thinking, taking it in. Peter rushes in there. Well, lest we be too harsh with Peter, consider this. Peter rushed in. And didn't stop and meditate like John. But here we're seeing in verse 8. A reminder of the blessing of having multiple different personalities within the context of the church. I think perhaps it's possible that if Peter had not rushed in. John might have stood outside the tomb all day long. Just meditating. And it's a wonderful thing. that Here we see after Peter's gone in there. Then John. He goes ahead and follows him in there. It says, Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in after Peter. And the result of his going in is that he saw and believed. He follows Peter in. And see, you need both. You need a variety of different people. It's one of the blessings of having a church which recognizes a plurality of elders or pastors functioning together that there's a benefit in having more than one personality or inclination or gifting that you bring to the table. Sometimes you've got to press forward and do the thing. And sometimes you need to stop and be still and think about it. And both are helpful. Both are important. And we could apply this to a number of different differences and distinctions that Christians have. 
And praise God that not all of you and maybe not many of you are an awful lot like me. Because that would probably maybe not be the, the best thing for any of us. But here's my question. We read of John. He went in and he saw and believed. Here's my question. Have you seen and believed? There does seem to be a little bit of irony in this text. Now, I mean this. That John appears to believe not because of what he did see, but because of what he didn't see. Yeah, yeah, there's a cloth folded up there, but Jesus isn't there. He believes. And what is it that he's believing here? Well, I don't believe that what is demonstrated for us here is John's conversion. That this kind of belief that John saw and then he believed, that this is indicating to us growth in a Christian and not conversion. Why do I say that? John wasn't converted here in John 20. What authority can I say that on? Well, you remember back in John 13, verse 10, when Jesus is washing the disciples' feet and He gets to Peter. Peter says, not me, you're not washing me. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you've got no share with me, Peter. Peter says, well, in that case, not just my feet, wash my head, wash all of me. Jesus says, you don't need, you've already bathed, you don't need to wash all of you, only your feet. And He says this in verse 10, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. And in the context, we find out he's referring to Judas there. Judas was the one who was not already clean. And if there's any question at all, after Judas has gone out, John 15 and verse 3, Jesus says to the disciples, Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. So John's already converted. He's already been made clean. He's already washed. He's already forgiven. He's already in Christ. So this believing here is not unto salvation, but it is significant. Christians are not saved by having a perfect understanding of the Scriptures. And praise God that they're not. There are a lot of people in this world, and I will be the first to throw down the gauntlet that doctrine matters. And that's actually one of the significant points of the sermon today. Doctrine really matters. But I do praise God that it's not doctrine that saves. It's the God of the doctrine who saves. And you can be wrong about things and still be forgiven and saved. And here's an example of that. You're saved. A Christian is saved because they've been cleansed by the word of Christ, the declaration of Jesus, mine. If you're trusting in Christ alone as hope for your salvation and eternal life, you're forgiven and you're saved. But what we see is how detrimental it can be, even for true Christians, especially for true Christians, when our understanding of the scriptures is lacking. He saw and believed. Verse 9 tells us this. For as yet... They did not understand the scripture that he might rise, that he must rise, not might, that he must rise from the dead. Now, some people today, they imagine that doctrine and theology, deep study of scripture, that they're only really relevant for preachers and Bible teachers. Well, I don't really know, need to know the depths of the word of God. That's what we have a preacher for, Right. So he can talk about the depths of God's word. And I don't really need to internalize or know or understand these deep things. People say things like that and they are ridiculous and absolutely wrong. And we see just how practical it is that you know and understand the scriptures. You see, as we're looking into these verses, the greatest cause of the disciples distress 
during this time was a poor understanding of what God had revealed in his word concerning Jesus Christ. It was a theological problem. They didn't understand the truth of what God had said in his word and that led them to distress. And on contrasting that, the greatest confidence and the greatest triumphant living that any Christian will ever know comes from a proper understanding of Jesus Christ as not just one part, but as the center and climax of all of God's word. If you see Jesus is what it's all about, the more you come to understand that, you're grounded, you're planted, you have a rock beneath your feet. And that's exactly what's needed. Pursuit of growth in theology is essential for Christians to live as we've been called to live. And so I ask, how is it that we're going to be strengthened? How is it? Yet they have yet to understand the Scriptures. How is it that we're going to be strengthened? How is it that you and I are practically, realistically going to be prepared to live our lives as Christians with tenacity and joy, which can overcome all of the suffering and all of the afflictions that are present in life? How do we get there? And someone says, where do I even begin if I'm going to grow in my understanding of theology? The answer is by being rooted and grounded in a biblical understanding of Jesus Christ, of his death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. Consider again with me from the call to worship, Luke 24. Listen to this. See how practical, how real, how important this is. Verses 13 onward. That very day, two of them, disciples of Christ, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some of our women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen visions of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it 
and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Here's what we're seeing. Does that sound good? That sound like something worth desiring? Can you even remember as a Christian the last time, not only that you agreed with the truth, but that it actually caused your heart to burn within you? The expression Don Curran likes to use, it makes your heart dance. It's like the thing's on fire. It just gets active and excited and you're looking forward to something. These disciples are downcast because they have bad theology. Oh yeah, Christ is the one to redeem Israel, but not in the carnal way you think. Redeem Israel by dying for them and rising from the dead. If you would have your heart burn or dance within you with this triumphant kind of glory. Would you be one who would have your inner being sustained with unconquerable joy? Christians are those who ought to be able to face difficulty, suffering and even death with confidence that cannot be swayed. And the answer is, how do we get there? Is to be compelled with everything you study in the Word of God and to see how it all is pointing you to Christ. He didn't misspeak there in the text. It says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, but not only them, from all the Scriptures. The things concerning himself. Your entire Bible is a testimony of Jesus Christ. Foreshadowed and coming. Now he's come. And he's coming again. And everything is about him. If you had seen and understood that. If you'd understood that the redemption that's promised to Israel. Is of their souls being restored. Their sins forgiven. Not a military conquest. If you understood theology. And you wouldn't be downcast in heart. You would say that tomb's empty because it's supposed to be. We've been promised that it would be to be compelled by these things. So my charge is this. If you're already trusting Christ in the way I'm describing, that you would be reminded of the wonders of his grace and his forgiveness, that you would be once again able to consider the spotless blood of Christ, which is set there against the backdrop of your sin and your rebellion and all that has you separated from God without him. And there you see the glorious, beautiful cross. How can I say that a cross is beautiful because of what he did on it for me? And that you, like that woman, like Mary Magdalene, in light of these things, would be compelled to love what much as one who's been forgiven much. But then the charge comes. I say that theology will strengthen and encourage the Christian, help us to press forward and onward with Christ. What of the lost? What if you're one here today who has never yet trusted in Christ? What are you to do with these things? Well, The charge is that you would see Him there. See this Christ who did die under the wrath of God for sinners. For you. See Him dying for you. See Him in the grave burying your sin and your shame. And then see Him in our text rising from the dead. And the shout, the cry of that empty tomb is victory. It is done. It's finished forever. And He will never die again. Look to Him and live. That's the charge. 
which leads us into our last verse 10. And the disciples went back to their homes. Now, you see them going home after all of this and their theological knots have not been unwound and they don't have it all figured out yet. But they at least John says there's some believing taking place. There's some growing taking place. Well, here we see them returning home and we're reminded of something. Life goes on even after these great experiences and encounters with God. Still got to get up and go to work tomorrow, don't you? Got responsibilities, children to tend to, things to do. They had to go back to their homes. And as much as we all might like to sit down with John and bask in the glory of an empty tomb, a resurrection, there are things yet to be done in this world. But the charge is this. And even as we're about to consider around this table, that though there are things for us to do, it is not a call for us to plod on through life for a moment forgetting the glories of what we've come to know. We're reminded regularly, monthly in our case, we come together to remember the body and blood of Jesus Christ shed for us and broken for us. Why? So that we might go and live in light of that. That we go out to those responsibilities, go back to our homes in light of what we've seen, in light of the growth we've come to know. And as we're seeing in our verses today, you can rejoice in the body and blood of Jesus because he rose from the dead. We say this, and this is true, that Jesus gave his life as a ransom. He paid for our sins with his own death. But if he was still dead, you could have zero hope that your sins had been forgiven. Do you realize this? That the punishment, the guilt of your sin upon Jesus, if he doesn't rise from the dead, you can have no confidence that your sins have been forgiven. There's still a debt owed if he's still in the grave. His resurrection is the permanent testimony to us that God the Father received that sacrifice. He said, I accept this payment. The purchase is complete. His resurrection proves that. And there's nothing left for any one of us to do except repent and trust in a resurrected Savior. Jesus, who is alive again. He was dead and He's alive again. And that is exactly, exactly what enables us. That truth is what enables us to gather around this table. To remember what He did for us. And to rejoice in it. And I plead with you, Christian. If you're struggling, if you're weak, if you're finding that you don't have the strength to endure the trials that you're facing, if that's where you're at, my encouragement to you is, my dad, he attended a G3 conference this year and he said he, he sat in a breakout session and a man actually stood up and said the problem with preaching and why power is not in preaching these days is because people are too excited about trying to spiritualize every text and looking for Jesus where he's not there. I believe that is one example of being as wrong as you can possibly be. If you're not seeing Christ in whatever text you're in, you're failing to understand it rightly. Look for Jesus. If you're struggling, if you're doubting, if you're not able to deal with whatever difficulty you have, you need to see Christ. You can be as downcast as those disciples on the Emmaus Road and your heart will burn within you. Once you begin to see Christ from all the scriptures 
and see God's consistent time and a time and time again testimony of His Son in this book. And if you're not a Christian, this is the only source of your deliverance and any true joy. It is a joyous thing indeed. And so with that, I'll ask you to bow with me in prayer. And we'll prepare to take this supper together. Heavenly Father, Oh Lord our God, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for Your Son. God, continue to open our eyes to understand the truth of Your Word. Not in some subjective, self-glorifying application or spiritualization but that we would see Your Son as He's intended to be seen, according to the Spirit of God who authored these things. Father, I pray that You would enable us to enter fully in together as we take these elements and remember the cross. Oh, Father, I pray that You would continue to do what You've promised to do in sustaining us. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.